You're listening to the OK's Fisher Podcast, part of the OK's Podcast Network, featuring your hosts, Matt Strine and Greg Tubbs. Hey there, welcome back to the OK's Fisher Podcast. How are we doing, Matt? Doing good. How are you doing, Greg? Oh, can't complain. Actually, I have plenty to complain about. The weather sucks. We don't have any ice, and it's too warm. I got it off my chest. I mean, years past, we've been on ice by Christmas vacation. Heck, I remember as a kid going and chasing walleyes on Mud Lake uh, with tip-ups, with uh, with minnows and, and catching walleyes before Christmas break even, you know. Um, some years up north, gun hunting, six, eight inches of ice. Not a thing anymore. Really, nope. really unfortunate. Winter seemed to get pushed back and back further and further. Yeah, so maybe by January uh, we'll start to accumulate some ice, although January's just a stone's throw away. And uh, all we can say, all I can say is I hope we have ice for our event in February, uh, the Icebreaker event. Our collaboration with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers will be the 3rd of February. I'm hoping there'll be good enough ice to at least walk out. It's just baby steps here. So it's that or our friend Adam Walton from Pike Pole Guide Service is going to be doing some rescue work for us. Yeah, I'll be wearing a life jacket. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> well, we're uh, we're going to talk to somebody regardless today about some fishing. It may not be ice fishing. We'll probably touch on some ice fishing, but today our guest is none other than Mr. Bluegill himself, Troy Peterson. Troy, how's it going today? Good, gentlemen. How are you guys doing? Gentlemen. Wow. Ooh, it's a privilege. That is a privilege. <laughs> <laughs> so, Troy, your guide, um, your title, Mr. Bluegill, I mean, that's a pretty pretty bold claim. You must love bluegills, as I love bluegills. Maybe even more. I I don't know. I I really love bluegills. You know, I it's a passion um, for people that don't understand, and it's a passion for more than just the facts of chasing them. Um, go back to your childhood, and what do you remember with Graham and Grandpa? What do you remember with you know your uncle, your dad, or just you know riding your bikes to the local parks? catching bluegills man it's uh it's been you know kind of a thing that i picked up i I trademarked the name back in 2001 um and i got it from a couple of uh really good anglers um one of them uh was particularly uh probably pretty famous most guys know mr walleye gary roach and uh it's kind of how that whole name thing came about um a mutual friend of gary's is uh, a good friend of mine from oshkosh and at the time my license plate said mr walleye for wisconsin and uh i was you know diehard walleye angler grew up on lake winnebago and really wanted to pursue you know fishing tournaments and chasing walleyes and it was uh it was good. I mean, we had a, a, a pretty good uh, go at it. And um, my passion, though, still kind of went back to teaching. And 
you know, the guiding aspect more so than anything and taking kids out and working with uh, organizations like Big Brothers, Big Sisters and getting these kids out fishing. And it's really just kind of spawned. And um, you go back to what these kids love to do and what we all love to do. Uh, even the most, you know, the Tommy Kimos of the world, the Tommy Scarless, the Gary Roach, all these big walleye guys, what do they do in the offseason when they're not chasing walleyes? They chase bluegills, you know, Jason Shakurit. All these guys come up and, you know, we'll go hit the ice together and go chase uh, big bluegills around. So, um, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I've caught the biggest bluegills in the world. There's plenty of people that have been out there that have way better water. And I tell you what, if I had all the money in the world and I can anywhere um i'd be putting four or five pounders on the wall every day <laughs> but you know for what we have to work with and um you know it isn't i'm not sitting here bragging that i catch the biggest bluegills um in my area uh i think i'm probably one of the top guys that can go out and chase and find big bluegills consistently uh and it comes from obviously time on the water but uh educating and doing a lot of research on what lakes are producing or can produce. And, uh, you know, in Wisconsin, there's so much pressure and, you know, the limits and all the laws and regulations just don't, you know, allow for these bluegills to grow anymore. So many people, and we talk about this, you know, in seminars and, you know, just day-to-day -day coffee talk with guys too is, you know, as anglers, uh, we've kind of gone in a dark uh, area as far as what we consider, what most people consider a successful ice fishing trip or a successful fishing trip in general. And what is it? A limit. You know, people think a successful fishing trip is going home with a limit of fish. And that's that's the complete wrong way to look at anything anymore. Uh, you know, do you go out in the deer stand and, you know, shoot? two deer, three deer every day? No. You go out and you sit in the woods and you have a wonderful day enjoying God's country. And you know what? If you see some deer, great. If you shoot a deer, awesome. That's just the bonus. But I tell you what, some of my best days hunting are days that I sit and watch bucks chase does around and just enjoying, you know, what's and same with, with, you know, fishing now it's, um, you know, I want my kids to be able to experience what I had growing up. And I think the generations that you know we're seeing right now in the high school, uh, fishing teams and whatnot, in Wisconsin are starting to mentally get, you know, brought up, um, that you don't have to go out there and kill everything. You can go out and harvest, you know, good eaters, but these big fish are, are very special. And uh, guys like, uh, you know, some of the guys with the Linders, um, Mike Hayner's been on my show, and I've spent a lot of time with him. Uh, he's very in the whole Minnesota deal um, with uh, growing big bluegills and, and looking at all these different lakes. And I know there's been a bunch of different articles uh, just online here lately, too, with like angling buzz and such. Um, that the the DNR, the Minnesota DNR, has done a phenomenal job at restricting, you know, a lot of these lakes that can grow giants, and we're starting to see that come back. Wisconsin, no different. You know, I think there's 
close to like 60 lakes now, just in kind of our general area that have these special regulations, these panfish regulations put on. And we're seeing not only the size come back, but the numbers and uh, the, the fishing's really starting to come back. But we have to patrol ourselves. Um, and I, I get into it with guys all the time. And, it, it, you know, unfortunately, it's the old timers, right? It's the guys that think they got to put a thousand bluegills in the freezer and only eat 50 of them and let the other, you know, 950 go to waste. Um, there's no way people can eat as many fish is what they catch. And it, it bothers me to no end. I've got no problems. You're going to have a fish fry and you're going to go out there and, you know, you need a hundred bluegills or whatever to feed a big family gathering. I don't care. Go ahead and do that. But if you're going out there and catching 25 every day for 15 straight days, number one, you're breaking the law. Number two, there's no way you're going to eat that many fish. They just, I don't know anybody that can do that. I eat a lot of fish. I've got five kids that I got to feed plus my wife and myself. And, you know, we eat a lot of fish and there's no way I could put that many fish in my freezer and, uh, and, you know, use them all. So, I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, these lakes, there's there's trophy fish that are available and uh, the regulations and everything are really starting to help. Um, and if you do your research, uh, you can find some giants yet. And we've got a few lakes just in central Wisconsin that, you know, literally can grow a 12 inch bluegill. I've seen them. Um, I've had clients that, uh, you know, my biggest one is like 11 three quarters and I've had a client catch one, a tick under 12 inches. And what was crazy is the guy, he didn't even know what he had. You know, he was just a buddy that was along with a bunch of friends that wanted to go chase big bluegills. This guy was just the third wheel and he catches, you know, a tick under 12 inch bluegill. He's like, is this a big one? <laughs> I'm like, dude, you have no idea what you just caught. Dude. He's like, not really. <laughs> And, uh, you know, but it's, it's, it's good to see, and it's good to put those things back. And, um, you know, if you do your research and kind of understand, and I know that's what we're going to kind of talk about tonight is what makes a lake, um, you know, a good big bluegill lake. And, uh, it's, it's fun. And for guys that don't know, and don't realize, you know, a 10 inch bluegill is 10 years older or older, and it's getting to the point now where it, you know, it's it, it's like that elite class, a 50-inch muskie, a 150-inch whitetail, a 10-inch bluegill. I mean, that's kind of the way we look at it. They're they're not easy to come by. And, you know, you get all these guys that you talk to at the shows or buddies, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're catching 10, 11-inchers. And I'm like, yeah, BS. Put it on a stick and show me that it's 10 inches because when I catch a 10-incher, you know it. And, you know, they'll, you know, granted, it always seems like the bluegills that are – big you know big and round and thick and bright colors the colors add like two inches it seems like um and you know they'll catch an eight and a half inch or a nine inch and they think it's 11 inches and um yeah we don't have to go down that road (laughs) the uh the delier bumper board is always on deck in my boat and i've had i can tell you how many on two hands uh fish that were 10 inches or slightly bigger I've caught out of my local lake here and it's not a ton, you know, in comparison to how many years I've been fishing, it took me a while to figure out the bite and what to use and, and really, uh, you know, times of year, that's a really important thing too. I think like we know we can do really well in June, right? 
I don't like to chase, <clears throat> I don't chase them on the beds, but um, the ice, they, they get to be pretty tough to find. Through the ice, they're really tough. And I think a yep. lot of that has to do with pressure, too, because my lake gets pounded throughout winter, and it's amazing to even think that there's fish left in there the next year. <laughs> hey, you know, those big bluegills are smart. They're as smart as a big whitetail. I mean, they don't get big by being dumb, and uh, there's a lot to be said about that. I watch and I study these fish on these lakes, you know, 365 days out of the year, and, you know, you talk about fishing on the beds, and I guess, you know, I'm I'm to blame. Uh, you, you go back 25 years or 30 years when I was a kid fishing with grandma and grandpa, you know, they grew up in the Depression. Uh, we ate fish and we ate venison and we had a giant garden that we made, you know, that's what we ate. We ate off the land. So back then in Wisconsin, you know, limits were 50. And for, you know, the whole month of June, it seemed like I'd go out with grandma and grandpa, my brother or my cousin or uncle. And, you know, there'd be four or five of us in the boat and we would come home every night with 150 or 200 bluegills, all just big, giant paper plates. We didn't know any better. I mean, back then, it was that was just the norm. I mean, you just did that. And that's that generation that is still continuing to do it. But I'll tell you is that some of those old guys that used to rape a lot of the lakes that I live on now have passed over the last 10 years. And just from those guys alone, I've seen an influx of fish coming back because those guys are no longer here. So... <laughs> I'm not saying it's good that they died, but uh, it's helping the fish come back. <laughs> yeah, a few I, violators out there will definitely protect the fish population. <laughs> I, I got to ask, can you can you explain for everybody who's not fully aware, like Wisconsin limits, uh, what we're trying to shoot for, you know, on the, some of the special regulation lates on panfish? Um, you want to dive a little bit into that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, there's a couple different, uh, regulations that have been set in place. There's been a five, 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 which means you can catch five bluegills, five crappies, five perch, uh, through a certain time of the year. And it's, I think the end of June. So it protects a lot of the fish through the spawn. Um, and then it'll go to a, like a 10 or a 15, you know, bag limit, depending on the lake, you know, Wisconsin is probably one of the worst States in the entire country when it comes time to regulations. And it's not me saying that, it's the game wardens. If you go and talk to these guys, they all say the same thing. There's so much gray area in Wisconsin that a lot of these guys, you know, they have to pull out the rules book, you know, when they're on a certain lake to figure out, okay, what lake, you know, oh yeah, okay, this lake has got this. What I would love to see is just go to either a 10 or 15 in, or a fish bag limit statewide all year long, and just be done with it. None of this, you know, five, five, five or whatnot, but you know, the thing of it is it's working. And uh, there's some of the lakes are either a 10 or a 15, or they have that five, five, five law and it protects the fish through the spawn. Now, some lakes it's 10 or 15 all year long. And those are the lakes, you know, over here in Washera and Wapaka County, we've got a lakes, a lot of lakes over here that have that um, 10 fish limit and uh, no size limits. You know, they've never in introduced a size limit for any of the fish. I know in Minnesota and some of the southern states, they have size limits on bluegills and crappies, um, but they've never done that here. 
Um, I don't know if that would really make a difference or not. There's probably not a whole lot of guys that are going to measure a bluegill before they put it in the live well. Um, but, you know, again, when you look at how many tens of thousands of lakes we have in Wisconsin and, you know, the good ones, sure, they get, you know, pounded and guys know about the good ones. The problem is, is, you know, you've got, let's just say there's what, 20,000, 30,000 lakes in Wisconsin and how many, you know, we got a million anglers and you've got what, 125 game wardens in the state of Wisconsin. How do 125 game wardens monitor, you know, 30,000 lakes and a million anglers? Just can't happen. And that's where you get, you know, the violators and uh, you're never going to get rid of that. It's impossible to. Um, but as anglers, you know, the guys that are out there, we can try and stop it. I, I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say, I've turned guys in. Um, I'm not afraid to say that. You know, when I see a, a guy fishing a lake three times a day, catching, you know, 40, 50 bluegills each time he goes out, I have a problem with that. That's, you know, I get bitched at all the time for raping lakes and all that. And I'll be the first one to say that, yeah, when I first started fishing out here and fishing these small central Wisconsin lakes, um, I we go out and, yeah, we were catching limits of fish. Now, for clients and guiding and even fishing, if I go out and fish personally, uh, these these lakes are like my my pets, man. I, I have a hard time killing a bluegill on any of these lakes around my house. And if anybody comes out and fishes with me, the first thing I ask them is, where are you from? Because if you're from, you know, within a 50 mile radius, I'm not taking you out there. Uh, I've been burnt too many times by guys, uh, you know, saying, hey, we want to go out and fish with you. You go out there, you take them out there. And it's always guys in their, you know, 50s, 60s that you take them out there, you do good. And you come back the next day and they're sitting in the same spot. And you come back the next day after that and they're sitting in the same spot. And by the end of the year, they've been there every single day. And then they call you back. It's like, hey, we want you to take us out again. But we don't want to go to that lake. We want you to show us a new one. I don't want your business. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> to, to elaborate on that, um, what size are you guys keeping? Like what's, what's so, good for the population? Is it a slot limit? Is it, you know? <laughs> um you know my when i go out with guys i know the lakes that can sustain um you know good harvest there's there's areas especially on like the winnebago system or the fox river system where you've got you know thousands and thousands of acres of water um you're not going to hurt these these systems by taking out a bunch of bluegills now i always tell people and my my deal is Typically, anything close to nine inches and above goes back, period, 100%. Uh, my favorite, you know, I scale all my fish. Um, I love a seven and a half to eight inch bluegill. Everybody thinks that's too small, but I tell you what, let me go to a fish fry and let's, let's hook up some 12 inch crappies, some nine inch bluegills, and then a bunch of seven inch bluegills. And what are the first ones that disappear off that pan? It's always the small ones, like you know, they jerk, taste, man. they like, taste better. They're, they're, you know, crunchier. They're just, you don't have those pin bones that, you know, that uh, don't fry up on those bigger fish. Uh, just everything about them is, is so much better. Sure. It takes a few more to, you know, make a meal, but still, if I'm going to feed a family, you know, my whole family, if I go out and catch 25 bluegills, that's 50 fillets. At most, you know, we can maybe eat 30 fillets amongst everybody here. So when I go out, if I'm keeping a fresh meal of fish, 
Um, I typically clean or I'll clean like 20 fish and uh, that is more than enough to feed, feed a family. You throw some French fries and some, you know, whatever mixed in with the, with the fish. And that's a, that's a huge meal. Tell you what, my mother-in-law's got a, a, a great recipe for homemade coleslaw. And if we're doing a fish fry, that's what she's in charge of. And one of the things to look forward to if you're into coleslaw. No, that that's a that's good because like when I think of bluegills, that's the first thing. The bluegill chips are the first ones to go. The little two bite potato chip ones, the big ones, you're right, are always last. Those if we catch some bigger ones, those usually go into a bluegill dip. We have a great bluegill dip recipe that we love making, but or they make a good fish taco. Yep. Yeah. Have you guys ever tried grilling bluegills? I have not. I have not. So on my YouTube channel, I've got a recipe, um, and I know the boys up at In Fish and Linders and all those guys have featured it a few different times. It is to die for. You'll. My kids prefer it over fried fish. Um, and there, you know, during the summer and that, when we got their grill going every day, um, I prefer it over fried fish. And what's nice about it is, uh, you don't, you know, you don't have the breading. Um, it's this most simple, quick and easy recipe for, you know, tinfoil pan, stick of butter, a lemon and some lemon pepper seasoning. And you just kind of mix it all together, coat the flays, put them on the grill for like seven, eight minutes, pull them off. Oh, it's, it's to die for. We might be featuring that on our page soon. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, I'm going to kind of steer us back to what does make a premier or good bluegill lake. I mean, we all have our ideas. I mean, I think having cover in it is a big deal. Uh, food, obviously, is a big deal. And then I think just people's awareness of, hey, we should throw a fish back is also a big deal but care to elaborate on that at all troy yeah so there's a lot of factors that go into um growing big bluegills uh you know there's a lot of lakes obviously lakes that get pressured are going to struggle a little bit more but it doesn't mean that they can't grow big fish um you know there's there's a misconception on the fact that um you know if you have uh, a, a lake that's got a bunch of bluegills in it, you know, the fish are just going to keep growing and growing. It's not true at all. Bluegills are a weird species in the fact that they only grow to the biggest of the fish that's left in the lake. So if you've got a lake that's full of 10, 11 inches, you're going to grow 10, 11 inches. If you have a, a lake that's full of seven inches, you're only going to grow seven inches. You're not going to get above that. Um, it's crazy how the genetics work in, in bluegills. And, you know, one of the biggest things I look for, for, for finding lakes that have big fish, one, you need deep water. Uh, you need something where they can hide, they can swim from predators. Uh, they need that, that cold water in the summertime uh, to, you know, be able to withstand, um, you know, the heat or whatnot uh, that, you know, that dissolved oxygen. And what happens in shallow lakes is, when the dissolved oxygen gets so low in the summertime, they stop feeding, they stop eating. They just kind of go into a dormant stage, same as what they do in the winter. So you don't get a full year of growth. Uh, so you have to find something that has some deep water that they can go to find some oxygen and continue to feed all year long. So deeper water, um, typically 
you know, you want to find lakes that have good cabbage, good cabbage, you know, good coontail, uh, a lot of good weed growth, because uh, with that, you're going to find a lot of good bugs. And when I'm out and you, know, you, you always find those big lakes, middle of summer, 4th of July, and uh, you're driving around um, or you talk to people and say, hey, do you have dragonflies on your lakes? And if you're out by a body of water and you see dragonflies flying all over the place or back in these shallow bays, uh, you're seeing a bunch of dragonflies flying all over. That means there's very, very good food source for those bluegills. And bluegills love dragonfly larvae, you know, the thunderbugs and, and the helgramites and stuff like that. If they have all that good protein, you're going to find some big fish. The other thing is, if you know of lakes that have, you know, all the right you know, structure, weeds, depth. Um, if there's no big bass or no big pike in there, there's not going to be very many big bluegills. You have to have a balance of predator fish to keep those small fish in check. Otherwise, you just you get that stunted lake again. And, uh, you know, you're just going to run into a bunch of small fish. So, uh, I mean, and there's a lot more uh, things to look for. Um, uh, the, you know, stained water versus clear water. I find that the clear water lakes always tend to have uh, the bigger fish. And I think for that reason, um, goes back to what forage is there, the bugs. Um, you know, if you have stained water, typically you're going to find some cabbage, but you're not going to find that cabbage really down deep uh, where it needs to be. And when I say that is um, you I always look for, for cabbage that grows, you know, 14, 16 feet or so. If you can find lakes where you got really deep cabbage, you're going to find fish that uh, in all species, whether it be, you know, walleyes or pike or bass. Typically, if you got deep weeds like that, you're going to find some big fish right along with them. Does, how much does acreage play into it for growing big fish? It doesn't, um, you know, if you've got, if you've got the balance, uh, you can grow my pond in the backyards an acre. And, uh, I've got a couple other buddies, you know, that have three quarter acre ponds and growing giant bluegills. It's food, it's predators and cover, you know, really those three things. And obviously we've got aerators in our pond, so we don't have to worry about that, but um, you have to have a, 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 you have to have a food source. You have to have predators to take out the small fish. Um, and then you've got to have cover for the big ones to be able to survive too. Uh, it, you know, acreage really doesn't make a bit of a difference. Look at Winnebago system. I mean, what do we got? 140,000 acres and it grows big fish. Don't get me wrong, but I've got lakes that are over in Washera County, Wapaka County that are, you know, 25, 30 acres that grow twice as big a fish as what's out on Winnebago. At least that we see, I know there's giants there are bigger fish that swim out there, um, but they're so darn smart that you just can't find them or catch them. Well, and that's a lot of acreage to try and cover to try and find them, too. I mean, and they move, you know, you get a big wind, it'll push them to another side of the lake. So they don't always hold tight. Yeah, and that's one of the nice things about those small lakes is you can cover the whole lake. I mean, you can figure it out pretty quick. Where you get out on the Winnebago, you know, everybody asks me, hey, can we go catch some bluegills in, you know, in June or, you know, or I'm sorry, July or August. And, you know, growing up on that lake, um, it's easy to catch bluegills in May and June. And then again, in, you know, October, September, 
July and August, I have no idea where these fish go. We might stumble into one or two here and there, but they pull a Houdini act and they disappear. Uh, and I just, I think they go where everything else goes. They go out into the mudflats. They're feeding on lake fly larvae. They're feeding on redworms. And you've got 40 miles one way and nine miles across. That's all the same. And those fish can go anywhere and do anything they want. It's funny you say that because I, uh, I experienced that on uh, the Madison chain over the summer. And it was, you know, late July, August. And, you know, fish in our typical spots that we like to try and find them and we've had success at and just the way the weather played out we weren't finding them so i'm like we got to go deep that's the only thing i can think of doing and there's a flat out in this one area and i believe it was about 25 feet and it came up to about 16 we were bouncing between that those two depths and like literally right on the bottom you weren't picking them up on the graph but all of a sudden you'd sit there and, and leave it leave a bobber sit in front of it and played with depth played with depth and finally i had to had that jig head with that red worm just ticking the bottom just barely ticking and the, and the only way i knew i had a fish on is when the bobber would start to swim away and then he would have enough oomph to pull it down um yep my other buddy would also fish with a with just a tiny split shot and an aberdeen hook and a red worm or a leech and throw it right on the bottom and just super light ultralight four pound test and that's how we got fish. Yeah, they're they're notorious for feeding off the bottom in, in midsummer. And you know, for a couple of reasons. One, what we were talking about, you know, thermoclines and that dissolved oxygen, right? You get up above that, water's too warm for those fish. They don't want to be there. They want to be down and they want to be able to live a normal life and go out and feed and do what they want. They get into that hot water and that oxygen levels are down and it, it suffocates them and they just, they don't know what to do. Um, so that's why they go down deep and they feed off the bottom on a lot of these lakes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if we're going to go ice fishing and you have a, a lake picked out, what's the first thing you're heading to? You know, what's the first piece of structure you're headed to? ice fishing so you know my research starts on all my lakes uh typically in fall um i'm going out you know a week before i know the lakes are going to start to freeze up and i'm going to go do some searching uh this year especially uh we lost about five feet of water in our lakes this summer um over in central wisconsin we're really low so all my weed beds that we fished last winter are they're they're either gone or they're you know way up shallow they're not those fish are just not going to be there so what we did this fall and typically um you know on these on these small lakes uh they don't have like channels or whatnot you know they're just a, a basin lake and these fish will usually conjugate um by any sort of uh shallow sandbar you know with uh some Maybe if you got some rocks or something, anything that's going to be warm, you know, they're looking for warm and they're staying there because that's where, you know, their metabolism is high. As the rest of the lake starting to freeze up and it's starting to get cold, they're still, you know, trying to get that last little bit of warmth left. So and that's where they're going to be uh, right away as soon as the ice freezes. And then after that. Um, you know, you're looking for food sources, you know, typically in the weeds. And what I see and what I find is uh, you'll find these big, you know, weed areas or weed beds 
um, you know, back in some bays and whatnot. And a lot of times, you know, especially with these clear lakes, early in the morning, they're going to go up shallow. They're going to feed on those weeds. And then as the day progresses, they're just going to slide out over the basin. They don't necessarily go deep, but they just slide. And, you know, till you get into the midwinter when, you know, the oxygen levels are starting to deplete, that's when you start to see them sink and get down to where there's some oxygen left in the water. Um, and, you know, as the evening comes again, those fish that are sitting over and suspending, they'll just slide back up to the weeds, feed some more, and they'll hang out there at night because the predators are, you know, usually cruising around looking for food and those bluegills will sit in those weeds and just hide. And then, uh, you know, in the morning they're feeding a little bit, they're getting aggressive. And then again, you know, as the day progresses, they'll just slide back out and that's what they do pretty much all the way until you get till I always say till probably about the end of January or so. And then that bite typically slows down and everything then goes out and suspends. And that's where, you know, the electronics, whether it be the 360 or the live scope or the mega live comes in handy where you can go drill a hole in the middle of these basins and start scanning and finding these schools of fish. And typically when when this starts to happen, we're not talking schools of five or six. We're talking schools of 80 to 100 fish. You know, when you get into those, you know, midwinter blues, uh, just like deer, as the, the winter progresses, you know, those deer really herd up into really large numbers, turkey, everything it seems like in the wild gets into big groups and they just kind of hang together. And then as we get, you know, later on in the season, uh, they're going to start doing just the reverse as uh, what happened first ice. They're going to start going back to the shallows. Uh, you're going to get runoff coming off the shorelines, fresh oxygen's coming in, the water's starting to warm up wherever you've got weeds or rocks, that sun's penetrating down, and they're going to start to go find that warmer water again. We talked about it uh, the other night on my podcast. One of the biggest things I follow through the ice more than anything is water temperature because that'll tell you a lot on the lake what happens. I carry my Markham, my Pursuit uh, camera with me all the time. And I'll drop it in some shallow bays, see what the water temperature is. I'll go out over the basin, see what the water temperature is, go find some cribs, see what the water temperature is. And the fish that you're going to find that are going to be more active are going to be, you know, anything that's going to be in that 39 degrees, 40 degrees. Because water, I think, at its densest point is like 39.4. And that's what it should be, you know, down at the bottom of a lake. Um, that's what the water temperature should be. And then as obviously as you get higher, you're getting colder. Um, and so many times we'll go into a lake and uh, if it's been really cold and windy, uh, you get into, you know, 10, 12 feet of water or less. And that water temperature will be 38, 37, 36 degrees. Those fish don't move. You know, they're down there by the hundreds. And if that's, you know, where they're forced to be, um, you know, their gills might open once every like five seconds. They're just, they're not doing anything. It's like they're hibernating. Um, but then on contrary, if you go and you find, you know, some deeper water, you find some schools of fish and it's 39 degrees, or even if you find a 40 degree pocket where there's a spring or something, man, those fish are on fire. And, you know, typically they'll feed pretty aggressively. So from what I've been taught and hanging around all these biologists and stuff over the years is they tell me that one degree to a fish is like 10 degrees to a human. So when the water temperature or, you know, anything changes, you know, just two degrees, that's like a 20 degree temperature drop for us. Um, I know the first thing that I'm going to do, if it drops 20 degrees, 
I'm going to find a warm bed to lay in and I'm going to cuddle up and uh, not do a whole lot. Um, on the you know, flip side, if it warms up 20 degrees, I'm going outside, I'm going to look for, you know, something to do. Uh, so, you know, you kind of put that in perspective and it, it makes sense once you start patterning and, and just watching all those fine details that a lot of anglers don't really pay attention to. Um, they just think, oh, the fish aren't biting, you know, but why? You know, there's always reason why something's not happening. And a lot of times it has to do with water temperature through the ice. Interesting. Again, you know, the, the pressure and, you know, Mother Nature it, itself is always, you know, playing factors too. But um, if you really sit and watch water temperature, you'd be surprised on, you know, what one or two degrees does uh, for active fish. Yeah, I, I, we've seen it, right? No matter what we chase, even like ocean fishing, when I go down an ocean fish offshore, I mean, there's there's times where you can tell wind switches, it carries cooler water in. The fishing isn't nearly as good. Yeah, look at Lake Michigan. I mean, yeah. Lake Michigan, it's all about water temperature. It doesn't it mean nothing else matters. It's all water temperature related. Yep. I mean, we we fish salmon out of my boat, and we run a probe, <clears throat> and we, we look for that cline. And if we can find it, we're in the money, and we know where to put our yep. boats. If we can't find it, if it's nothing but warm water or all cold water, then then what do we do? Now we're, you know, if it's cold water, we're looking for warmer water. If it's all all bath water, then we're either going deeper or having to put our, our baits down lower. We're always adjusting and moving to try and find that right temperature. Yep, and the bigger the fish, the more they're affected. You know, that's why small fish, small fish are everywhere. They're not affected like that. Big fish, they have to go where they feel comfortable. Um, and it's, it doesn't matter. The, the higher up in the food chain you go, bluegills, walleyes, you know, musky, pike, um, it, it just pertains. Salmon, you know, all that. The bigger the fish, the more they're affected by, by temperature. Sure. So early ice, what's your, what's your favorite go-to tactic? Is it, is it using tip downs? Is it using, you know, jigging, running and gunning, hole hopping? What do you like to do? My favorite is fishing my long rods, man. You know, I don't, I put the locators away and if I know an area, all these shallow bays where these fish are sitting yet from fall, um, you know, we'll go, uh, just the other day we went and got into one of my bays. We had three inches and I'm like, Oh, we're going to get them. I mean, there hasn't been a hole <laughs> drilled and I'm like, this is going to be dynamite. And, uh, my buddy and I, we punched maybe 20, 30 holes put the augers down, grabbed our five foot rods and we just walked around and jig, 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 boom. And it was, man, it was like whack-a-mole for like an hour. Um, we just, we had a ball. And that, that to me is probably the funnest way to fish. If, it, if nobody's ever done it, you, it's, it's simple, it's fun, it's easy. Um, no electronics required. You've got long rods, a spring bobber, no reels or anything. You're literally just dipping down in three to five feet of water, watching a spring bobber, catch a fish, lift it up, take it off, put it back, drop it down. And it's, you know, just repeat. Absolutely. It sounds like a blast. It's, you know, just like, like you said, going back to being a little kid, it, simple yep. fishing, get it out there, get it in front of them, watch the bobber disappear watch the spring bobber load up, set the hook, bring it in. There's nothing more fun than that. 
Yeah, no, it's uh, if we could do that, you know, if those fish would stay in those shallow waters all year long, it would be a blast. But, you know, <laughs> obviously we move out of the shallows and we got to go deep and, you know, we got to get the, the the reels out and electronics and start chasing these things. And um, basin fishing, you know, that's probably it's the most work, but it's probably the most rewarding and the most fun. There's nothing better than getting out in the middle of, you know, January, end of January, early February over these 40 foot lakes, 50 foot lakes, dropping a, you know, a 360 down or a mega live and looking and like, oh, they're over there and <laughs> and drill a hole. And where'd they go? Oh, they're, they're over there. <laughs> And pretty soon you've got a hundred holes drilled and then all you're doing is playing hopscotch and just kind of chasing these fish around. It's a lot of work, but it's to me, that's a lot of fun is chasing these fish. Sometimes you might get one fish. Sometimes you might have that school sit underneath you and you, know, you catch 10 at a time. Cause when you find those fish in that deep water, they're committing suicide. There's no, Oh, you know, tap, tap or anything like that they're fighting for survival and they're fighting amongst a hundred, one hundred of their other buddies. Um, it's game on when you get into those big schools of fish. Yeah. I, I've experienced that with crappies, not a ton with bluegills, but crappies, that seems to be a very reoccurring trend. Yeah. Matt, what else you got? Uh, you're you're the bluegill guy. I, I'm I'm usually the big fish guy, so I'm learning from this one too. So <laughs> you know, I, I'm definitely not an expert. I I love to fish them over uh, open water as much as I do uh, ice, but I've definitely had way more success catching catching those fish. Um, May June, April, May June. You know I, that's like the sweet spot time for me personally to catch those fish. I just I do very well on them. Um, I've most of the time, I'm not keeping any. If I do, it's the ones that get hooked just a little too deep. And I try to limit myself to about five to six fish, enough for my wife and I to eat, eat them fresh. If I want to eat more, I'll go out and catch more. That's the way I see it, you know. And, yep. and you're right. That seven and a half to eight and a half inch fish, those are perfect. I don't like to keep them much bigger than that unless they get hooked way too deep and they're bleeding and I know they're not going to survive. Sure. So, you know, when we talk about seasonal patterns, I, I kind of put this into perspective. Let's take a look at, we'll start in April. You got April, May, June, December, January, February. Those three months are exactly the same. And then after that, you know, July and August um, are kind of your dead months. And really it's, you know, it's a crapshoot, you know, I've caught them in, you know, super shallow water on fly rods and less than a foot of water. I've caught them out deep. They really just kind of go everywhere. Um, you know, that time. And the only time they're, the reason they're doing that and it's typically morning or evenings is they're just looking to food, you know, for food to stay alive and, and they'll go back out and hang over wherever the deepest water is. But, you know, it's kind of a reverse cycle. They just, they start shallow, they go deep, they go back shallow. And then springtime comes around, they're shallow. Summertime, they go deep. Fall, they come back shallow. And they just, it's a revolving door with those fish. Wherever you find them in, in April and May is when you're going to find them, you know, December. And wherever you find them in, you know, June, July, that's typically where you're going to find them in, you know, January, February. That's a good way, that's a good way to put it. Unless, unless you get the weird 
Like we got uh in-laws got a lake house and you'll have them spawning all the way into mid July still. Yeah. You know, that's the only time to see the bigger ones coming in shallow again. It's a little oddball to that rule. Cause I feel like they spawn 80% of the summer months. Yeah. You know, bluegills, everybody thinks that it's, they, they come in, they do their thing. It's a real short window and that's not true. You know, bluegills will spawn. Um, I've seen them start early June and go all the way into August. Um, depending on your lake and the circumstances on your lake. Um, and, you know, there again, what makes, you know, a good bluegill hatch is you got to remember, you know, this kind of goes back to what you should keep and what you shouldn't keep. And uh, everybody thinks you want to throw the females back. If anything, if you're catching big females and big males, put the females in your live well and put the males back. The males are the guardian of the lake. So if you've got nine, 10 inch males swimming in the lake, Everything that that female's producing will get to be as big as what that male is. If you've got seven inch males and, you know, seven inch females, they're only going to get to be seven inches. They're not going to get bigger. Um, so it's always important to keep the guardians of the lake in the lake and you can you can take out females and you're not going to hurt anything because for every, you know, one female is going to go and dump her eggs and, uh, you know, there's 15 more behind her that are going to go over to the same bed. Um, that males, you know, and the bigger males choose the, the prime spawning spots. They're going to, the bigger ones are going to be deeper. And the shallower you go, the smaller typically the males get. Um, so when guys go start fishing the beds, you know, you, all, you can see all the beds up shallow. And yeah, those are, I mean, it's like plucking ducks out of a barrel. The ones that you don't see are the ones that are down deep. And those are the ones that have the giants on them. Um, yeah, they're not going up shallow. They're, they're smart. You know, they know that that's easy prey for birds or, you know, um, you know, other big fish, but the ones that are down deep, those are the ones that, uh, you want to look for. And, um, you know, when it comes time, you know, when that spawns happening again, researching lakes, I love nothing more than to go out, take my kayak and just skirt around the edges of these lakes with an underwater camera and see what's down there. That way I can tell and I know, man, this lake has nothing but eight inches in it. No trophies or holy cow. I mean, because that's where the when the fish are under beds, everybody can find them. That's where they're at. They're not going anywhere. You can see them. They're easily defined. And you know, you can really tell a lake what it's going to be like, you know, in five minutes by cruising around looking at some beds. Um, after that, you know, I I just I can't fish them on their beds. I don't uh I don't enjoy it. You know, you you can do too much harm, just like you say, you you hook them deep typically too during that time period. They're just carnivores, man. They'll crush everything that swims by a bed. And uh, a lot of times they're swallowing hooks. So um, you end up killing a bunch. And, um, you know, if we do go out, you know, it's going to be with a fly rod and a, and a barbless hook or something like that on, at night with a fly rod. And, you know, we'll catch a few. But even at that, I just I hate fishing them on the beds. Fair enough. I think we covered tactics pretty well. If you had two baits that you could use for bluegill fishing what would those baits be um i really only use two baits for bluegills uh i run a a black or purple um it's a i think a seven or an eight millimeter tungsten jig with a um a year larva or i'm sorry the um 
the Z-Man, um, Euro, Euro, I don't know. It's like a Helgramite style, style bug. Um, and a drop of super glue, you, you feed that up, drop a super glue on the bottom of the jig head, and you can typically catch about 30 fish on one piece of plastic. Um, if I'm in the summertime and I'm throwing baits, I don't use any bobbers. You know, it's strictly just a tungsten jig, um, on that, on that, uh, little piece of plastic, you can swim it, you know, fast. And if they're, they're slowing down, uh, and they don't want a real fast moving bait, then I'll typically go to just a split shot, um, whatever size that we need it to be at for, you know, wind conditions or whatever, um, a split shot with a number 12 or number 14, uh, true turn hook. And there again, that same piece of plastic. And, uh, I have, again, what are we trying to replicate? We're trying to replicate that Halgramite or that Thunderbug. And that's what this thing looks like. It's a motor oil or like a greenish, um, you know, looks exactly like what's swimming around in the water. And, uh, that's, that's my beta choice. If it's, you know, a little bit slower and, or I got clients, uh, nothing beats a leech on a slip popper. Um, you can put that along, you know, out in the basin, suspended fish. You can put it along the edge of the weeds. Uh, it doesn't make a bit of difference. A bluegill is going to just crush a leech. Yeah. And some of my biggest ones, you keep the little ones away, but I'll use uh, jumbo leeches and catch 10-inch bluegills, and they'll have the whole thing gone. Mm-hmm. My biggest, my biggest bluegill I caught was caught walleye fishing. I can't even say I try, was trying to catch it. <laughs> a little bit of an eye-opener, though, isn't it? When you, it, I've it, had guys, three-ace jigs, trying to hang, hang them over the side, over the drops out here in the middle of summer. They're drift fishing for those deeper fish three-ace jig head with a, a jumbo leech and they hook the biggest bluegills that they can they've ever caught out here it's yep. just what it is that's how it works with every fish my biggest walleye was musky fishing you know my biggest smallmouth <laughs> bass was musky fishing it's it's you never and then you try to throw those style lures to catch a smallmouth or catch a walleye you can't catch them to save your life but <laughs> yep and flip-flop right your biggest muskies caught walleye fishing exactly <laughs> Usually in the springtime. <laughs> Great. Troy, do you have an okayest fisher moment that you could share with us? Well, say that again? An okayest fisher moment. Being that we are the okay. okayest fisher podcast, you know, I'm not expecting like a bill dance, you tripped and busted your knee on the ball of your truck kind of thing. But <laughs> if you've got something similar... Hmm. Let me see. <laughs> so back when I first got started, um, the Frable guys took me under their wing. Uh, the marketing director there, his name was Steve Oates. And, you know, here I am, a 19-year-old kid, one-year-old kid that's getting into the industry and the vice president of the company and the marketing director from Frable um calls and says hey bluegill boy i want to take you out i want to go out fishing with you on the ice i'm like yeah man i'm gonna score some brownie points and um i had a spot on on big lake butamore that uh was just dynamite all week long uh we had you know 10 inches of ice i had at the time um i had a 1969 johnson 
snowmobile. Uh, it was a little 440, no suspension, just bogey wheels. And, uh, but it was reliable. Started on the first pull and got myself around, um, you know, it's all I could afford at the time. And I had Fishman or Steve Oates was his name. And uh, he's a big boy. He's probably pushing 350, all of that. Um, and we wake up early in the morning and we want to get there first, early in the morning. So get everything unloaded, get on the ice and we're driving to the spot. And you always, you know, you, you get that instinctive feeling like something just isn't, doesn't feel right today. And uh, we're driving along and I'm on my trails from the night before yet. Um, we had snow on the ice, so I'm driving, driving, driving. All of a sudden, I just, something just didn't feel right. I'm like, oh, no. And uh, the winds had busted apart the ice and uh, we drove right in open water. And luckily we were on the edge of a river channel and we were only in about three and a half, four feet, five feet over was like 10 to 12 feet. Um, so we went down and it, you know, of course it's like one of the coldest days of the year. I think it was only like eight degrees that morning and, uh, we're sitting in the water and Fishman just starts laughing. I'm like, there goes my career. It's over. <laughs> You know, this is going to make it through the entire fishing industry and, you know, it's going to be bad. But, you know, we, we took it as a, um, you know, good laugh. Um, believe it or not, the two of us, uh, we had, the, you know, the Frable shacks behind us. Um, those were floating. We got those pushed off on back onto the ice. And the two of us picked that snowmobile up. You know, I think adrenaline kicked in, got it up on the ice um, I tipped it over, took the spark plugs out, drained everything, pulled, 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 and uh, got her fired back up and drove back to shore, got everything on the trailer, went back home, got all our clothes off, throw everything in the dryer, and we were back out fishing by 11 o'clock that morning. So <laughs> that was that was probably a moment that I, I'll never forget, you know, being as young as what I was and being out with the big wig in, in the fishing industry and just getting started. Um, I thought for sure that was going to be the end of me. <laughs> well, awesome. I think we're going to bring this plane in for a landing. Troy, where can people find you, uh, find your information, your guide service? Yeah, um, you can, uh, my website, www.mrbluegill.com, or if you do a Google search, you know, just type in Mr. Bluegill, uh, you'll find pretty much everything there. And then all the social media channels is all just uh, Mr. Bluegill, whether it be YouTube, Instagram, Facebook is there. Um, and the other, my guide page is actually under walleye guide, facebook.com forward slash walleye guide. So um, everything is there, phone numbers, contact information. And uh, we're doing, you know, weekly report or day, pretty much daily reports, honestly. Awesome. Well, that's awesome. We'll definitely have to have you back on come summertime here. Sounds good, guys. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us, um, everybody. Thanks for tuning into this episode. We're going to leave you with a little bit of music.